This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Bay McLaughlin from Brink on the evolution of his hardware company. We discuss the major trends on hardware and Internet of Things in Asia and break the myth of hardware is commoditized. Hi, Bay. What's going on, Bernard? I'm good. We last met in Singapore in Marina Bay Sands, right? When you were presenting there? Yeah. We were presenting at the Techcelerate conference, I guess, what was it, three weeks ago? Yeah, it was the Internet of Things Asia conference, and it's been good to finally catch up, although we have catch up already twice in person. <laughs> lots of travel, lots going on. Yeah, I'm talking to Bay McLaughlin, Chief Operating Officer and Co-Founder of Brink, the Hardware Accelerator. There's a lot of things happening with Brink recently. So since our last conversation, what have you been up to? Oh my gosh, what have we not been up to? We've, uh, we've done a lot. We've, we've launched our second cohort of our drone program. We've announced and started our, I think it's probably fifth or sixth, depending on how you count the early days, cohort of our global IoT accelerator. We've announced we have opened up our Middle Eastern presence. So in Bahrain, uh, we partner with Batelco, the largest telco out there, have a thousand square meter location, helping out to build out the hardware and IoT community in the Middle East. We have started our first program for later stage IoT companies called the Guanxi program, which allows founders that want to enter the Chinese market to get localized, to get legally set up, and to start working with both distributors in the physical world and the digital world in China. We just have three opportunities in November for anyone that's interested in entering or pitching to the Chinese market. We've got three different opportunities to work with government investors, Tmall, and a variety of uh, distributors. So we're working really hard on continuing to cross those borders for anyone that's interested in the physical world or building physical products to make sure that they can get educated, get accelerated, and then get their products built and distributed around the world. I've heard you on Twitter. I've seen a lot of your videos helping startup founders. And I've also heard that you have become a KOL, Key Opinion Leader for Huawei. What's that about? Yes. So that's one of the newest things since the summer. I've been invited to join, have been on a couple of great trips with Huawei. I think most of us in tech have heard the name, but you know they've been around 30 years. One of the largest companies out of China and probably one of the original startups in the Shenzhen Special Economic Zone when that was opened just about 30 years ago. So they've, they have a great program, which I'm very, very fortunate to be a part of, where they give us unprecedented access as influencers or key opinion leaders to not just their technologies and their R&D, but also to their executives. So actually today, I have one of their most senior people coming to the office in Hong Kong to hang out. I went to the uh, Huawei Connect conference uh, right after they announced their first AI or artificial intelligence processing chip that was going to go into the now announced Mate 10. And also took my whole team at Brink in Hong Kong and China to do a tour of their R&D facilities and their manufacturing facilities for their handsets in Guangzhou and Dongguan a few weeks back. So yeah, really, really cool program. Also got picked up for influencer for uh, Insta360, uh, which is one of my favorite 360 camera companies, also out of Shenzhen, a bunch of ex-DJI guys uh, that really are badass at creating camera technology. I think Bring has actually evolved a lot since our last conversation. It's no longer just being accelerated. You mentioned just now about late stage with the Guanxi program entering in China. So in your perspective, how much have Bring evolved in this last one year? A lot. 
So if you didn't catch this, you, you know, really ultimately we started evolving to look at the entire life cycle of IoT. We started out as an accelerator, which most of you know us best for. We have evolved a lot. So we purchased a company called Enter China, which is an early stage community and online education platform to support anyone that's interested in building physical products. We all know there's a lot of great documentation and support out there in the world for people that want to create software or services or app companies, but it's very hard for anyone that's trying to build their first physical business to really understand the basics. So now we have a fantastic community around that, enterchina.co. We actually have one of their groups on a trip to China right now. It's almost our 10th China trip that we've hosted for people in the Enter China community. 300 hardware founders in that community and growing. I'll reach at Facebook and the online and offline meetups. We have our accelerators, which we talked about, which have expanded both horizontally and vertically for drones, health technologies, physical locations like entering China. So we've got 30 investments in, in the accelerators. And then our studio, we've realized that everyone needs help building their products right the first time. And a lot of the value in building your first physical company is not in learning manufacturing your first time because time is the biggest thing that you're fighting when you're a physical or hardware business. So we've now shipped 32 different startup projects, everything from basic plastics to super complicated nanotechnology, antenna technologies. And now we're doing a product that's almost the size of an entire room, super, super crazy size. So we're doing our very best to continue to create programs and services that support people that want to innovate in the physical world. So we're always going to keep evolving. These are just some of the new announcements in 2017. So if like, for example, if Juicero or all those failed Kickstarter projects that have difficulty in manufacturing in China would have come to you, they wouldn't have that problem because you curate all the factories and the people in China. That's right. We handled the whole process, but I don't know if I could have saved Juicero. Juicero was just a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, where, I guess in Asia, outside China, where does Bring operate then? We operate in Hong Kong, China, and then we uh, have just what we call the impact network. So we don't have physical offices in other places. We have our impact network in Taiwan. We have people in Singapore, and there will be a couple of other locations that we'll be announcing. So this is a way if anyone's interested in learning about building ecosystems, building hardware products, getting excited about IoT. We're looking for people that are really, really excited, like to you know build and give back and learn. So these people are coming online and we're training them and teaching them how to build these sort of brand communities around the world. So if anyone's interested, happy to hit me up just on Twitter at BetaBay. So I thought I should just ask you one more question before we get into the main subject of the day. Now I understand that Bring has a lot of operations in China. What's the footprint over there? I guess where are your key activities within China? Is it just mainly trying to bring people into China, help people to set up in China, invest in them? Or is there like a greater plan at work? So China is obviously a critical market. There's no way to avoid this. It started out just by helping teams do the China work. So really utilizing the expertise and the supply chain, the experience that everyone has in China for manufacturing great electronic products. That's evolved. So we're not just in Shenzhen. We're also in Guangzhou. Guangzhou, we have actually a pretty large office. I think we're almost at 20 people there. And that's everything from our Guangxi program to our back office studio team, sourcing agents, uh, translators, growth hackers, uh, software expertise. So we're really trying to look at what can we do to better support 
more and more and more founders, both utilizing the amazing supply chain of South China, but then also starting to enter the Chinese market. So I think it's pretty clear with the Greater Bay Initiative, the Belt and Road Initiative, which I talk a lot about in my travels and keynotes, it's going to be more and more important for founders and investors and corporations to figuring out to figure out ways to partner and work with China. And so we're just trying to make that as easy as possible for founders. I agree with you. I think a lot of Western media downplayed the Belt and Road Initiative. I recently done an episode with Robert Cobb from The Economist on doing a really deep dive into the subject stuff. But today is on you. So we're going to talk about hardware, Internet of Things and Asia as a whole. I want to start off with hardware because we have that conversation privately. And to be honest, I believe a lot of venture capital firms in Asia out there share a particular business truth that I really dislike. One of them is this whole bullshit about hardware is commoditized. A lot of VCs use this to dissuade themselves from funding hardware companies. But then if you look out and then you start giving them counter examples like Huawei and Apple, I mean, Huawei's phones are doing very well. Their consumer phones are doing very well because they have the carrier networks that make sure that Huawei phones never drop calls. And obviously, everybody knows Apple is the most valuable company in the world. I guess I want to ask you is, what are your thoughts on the issue? I think this is really clear. I mean, I, I mean, just being honest, like the majority of the investment community, although, you know, I, I have some major respect for some of the people that have mentored me and brought me up, but I think a lot of people are just lazy. And it's not that these people aren't smart, it's that hardware to really understand it is a challenging process. I mean, every founder, any person that's ever backed a crowdfunding campaign has heard that hardware is hard. And as an investor, you know, you have a thesis that you promise your, your limited partners and you go execute against that thesis. And it takes a lot of time and energy to deal with, you know, running your firm. So I don't, I, I don't think that it's impossible. I think that it's just one more thing. And it's, you know, right now it's, there's still a lot of software and SaaS and app companies out there that people can invest in. So I like it because it gives us more opportunity, but I mean, I look at the future very clearly. He who has data will win period. Now, if you believe in that statement, then you have to think about another quick data point, which is where does the data come from? Guess what? Hardware. There is no such thing as data without hardware. So where does that hardware come from? If you're investing in a company or your corporation and you don't own your own hardware like Apple or Amazon or Huawei, guess what? You are letting someone else come in and unlock the data in your company, in your supply chain from your customers. That means they have that data too, or you might not even own it. You might be licensing your data from someone else that actually built that hardware because you didn't want to go down to the originating layer and build the hardware. I think that this entire generation that we've been a part of, you know, because you and I are about the same age, like I think that this particular generation that has become completely abstracted and horizontal, like every single thing is a service or an app right now, like the you know financial systems are like 700 separate services. I actually think we're going back to the original days of the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, where everything is verticalized. I think Apple's always seen it. I think Huawei's always seen it. I think Bezos at Amazon is one of the smartest people in the world, and he sees it, that if you don't have hardware, you are going to lose in the future. You have to like Google's even done it. Google's last announcement was all hardware. Every single thing was hardware. They announced like six new hardware products for a company that's a search engine. That's a big deal. So I think that investors are going to be, they're going to have to wake up. It's going to be a rude awakening. But what's nice is, you know, the people like us that are there that are willing to help those investors that do want to learn. But the early movers now are going to be in the right position and they're going to be ready to reap all the benefits of the people that didn't want to learn it over the last five or 10 years. 
to be fair, there are some venture capital firms. I think in Silicon Valley, they actually look at the, the hardware side. For example, GGV Capital with Hans Tong and Jenny Lee, they are actually looking at that. But not generally, in even in Southeast Asia, I don't see the investors thinking about it. I think they, they always try to put the software angle in it, but they don't understand that the hardware piece is actually much more important to have that competitive advantage for the company moving ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think they're like, you're like, but it's still the vast minority. You're totally right. There are a small handful of groups, but as a percentage, it's probably less than 1% globally, if that. In what you have worked on, I, I know you have done a lot of work with IoT startups. And I think during your talk in the conference, you, you, talk, you share a lot of interesting applications on IoT, particularly in Asia, on the areas of agriculture and healthcare. You want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. So we've, you know, we started out almost four years ago, uh, just really investing with our instinct and kind of our hearts and our passion. And we found that health technology was the first vertical that emerged. We found that over half of our investments were in health and medical tech. But then we started getting really excited about agricultural tech. We started getting excited about smart buildings, smart cities tech, and then drone technology. So we've kind of repositioned and rethought about four key areas of the world, which is how we feel. So that's usually our health tech, what we eat, which is obviously our food supply, where we live, which is our buildings, our homes, and how we move, which is transportation technology. And, and those four areas are some of the largest problems facing the world right now. And it's really profound. Like, you know, uh, some of our drone technologies, I'll give you an example. You know, when we look at uh, surveilling crops, you know, we're working with the Malaysian government, the Indonesian government to decrease the massive, massive growth of palm oil plantations and the inefficiency of growing palm oil because it's really destroying the world's forests and destroying and, and creating mass extinctions from these amazing, beautiful places that the environment really needs just by flying our drones and using computer vision to optimize where the farmers or where the uh, pesticides, et cetera, need to go. Or one of our most recent investments out of NYU in a carbon nanotechnology, they are building insoles that are connected for your shoes for people that are diabetic. In the United States, 60% of people are pre-diabetic or diabetic. This is one of the world's largest epidemics. I mean, you see Singapore, obviously, they've actually considered it a huge health issue for the entire country. China has a massive problem with this. It's really, really challenging. And what this product does is it allows the doctor loved ones and the patients to understand when they're starting to lose sensation in their feet. Because right now, 200 people every single day in North America have their feet or their lower limbs amputated every day because of diabetes. And not only can we solve just the money, but the just like human issues of being like having part of your body amputated, the loss of productivity and depression and all these things, we can fix these human problems using connected technologies. And, and our whole idea that connectivity changes everything, if you, it really does. Like We can solve the majority of the world's problems. And those four areas just happen to be areas that we're quite passionate about. So in your opinion, do you think that these IoT startups are actually picking up steam in Asia? Because I think the application is more business-centric rather than consumer-centric. I don't necessarily think it's just Southeast Asia or Asia. I think what's cool about being in Asia, and this is one of my biggest plugs for moving here, is that because of the density, because of the sheer size of the you know pool of the, of the audience and, and us also living in hyper-dense environments, I think that we're actually running in to human challenges in Asia before the rest of the Western world. And that means that we get to see challenges in mobile or 5G or smart city living or transportation or health crises. Like we get to see this kind of stuff 
before the rest of the world does. And that allows us to look for these new technologies. And we're seeing a lot of great corporations and governments really get behind this, which allows them the innovation to kind of say, hey, you know, I have an idea, I'd like to solve this. And small idea can actually have massive application in Southeast Asia uh, or Asia generally more so than in the West when you're targeting maybe one country in Europe or one aspect of North America. There are often challenges for startups in everything they're trying to disrupt. So where are the challenges of the IoT startups in Asia? Is it really like dealing with governments, dealing with very massive infrastructure projects, or maybe even with larger corporations as well? I actually haven't seen that to be the, the biggest problem. I've seen a lot of governments actually be, like I mean, Singapore, where you are, is actually one of the most proactive governments. China is really proactive. And I see, like I've done a lot of speaking in, in Thailand recently, they're really proactive. I think it's right now what's happening is it's sort of an educational transition. And, and what I think what we're seeing as a startup or hardware founder is they're just facing the basic challenges that every single hardware founder faces, which is the edit, you know education required to get enough funding and enough traction in the early days to get over the kind of whatever you want to call that early gap. I mean, people call it the chasm. That's right. So we everyone knows that, but in hardware, it's just unique, and there aren't enough mentors and groups like us that actually do understand this to try to educate, but. Once you prove the value, once you show that the concept works, most governments and corporations that I know in Southeast Asia realize this stuff is hurting them and they're willing and open-minded to get involved pretty quickly. I actually think much more so than the West. But again, we don't have a ton of those use cases yet because IoT is still challenging for founders to get their ideas to a scale and proof you know, proof point where a government or a corporation can really jump in. There's a lot of great ideas but a lot of them don't cross that chasm and get to the point where they're commercially viable, where they can actually take large-scale orders. What are the interesting trends in hardware or and software across Asia? I mean, if one, one trend I do see actually more in the Asia hardware companies is that people don't want to fill you with a lot of capital expenditure, but basically try to allow you to lease or subscribe to the hardware involved. Uh, case in point, I'm talking about Pepper, where you are not actually paying upfront fee to have that robot in your shop or whatever but you lease it and then they are priced to an average salary of a customer service rep in a Japanese store so do you do you see some interesting trends that has not been seen anywhere else or maybe you have identified some of these things so the to unfortunately you know I keep going back to China because there's just so many examples but the, the one of the examples I always bring up about China is that they've been able to uncouple or challenge pretty much every Western business model. And for anyone that knows how to build companies, there are only so many business models. There might be like six or seven. There's really not that many. And so when you look at stuff like how the West thinks about things, when you have, just give an example, I always like to give around micropayments. So in the West, if you you know, buy a, you know, buy a Netflix subscription or you buy a book from the iBook store or wherever it is, there's this sort of have a sample, try a little bit, and then you have to buy something for 10 bucks or 15 bucks or 20 bucks. In China, they're really good at this sort of pay per use model where 
they've broken down to its component parts pretty much every service where like for their bike sharing services, like you pay it. I mean, it's almost free. I mean, you guys have a lot of Mobike and everything else in, in Singapore too. But compared to the Western ride sharing companies that were out there, ride sharing was very expensive for bikes. In China, it's pretty much free. Like they're really good at getting stuff down to just the bare minimum to actually build a business on and cover the cost. Or if you want to read a book, you can literally pay by the page versus by you know the entire book after you've read the first 20 pages. I, I think it's interesting. I kind of wonder when the West is going to catch on to, it's not price sensitivity. It's really about breaking down the value and allowing your systems, it's really software and engineering effort, to allow the user to pay for what they really use. And I think that in the West, they just have this feeling that, I don't know, maybe that it would take too much work or that someone's not going to come in and really challenge that model. But I think we're seeing you know, blockchain technologies come up across Southeast Asia and people really trying to challenge the music industry, challenge the movie industry, challenge the entire payment system. So I don't know. We'll see. I see a lot of the innovation coming out of Southeast Asia and China. And I feel like the West is going to actually start being on its heels a little bit and have to catch up. After all, China also managed to find the business model for messaging app from the web to now mobile with Tencent's WeChat, they also found a way to actually get micropayments to work through Alipay, through Tenpay, and even getting AI to work through Toutiao, which is basically you can read through the, and then basically get your news pattern. That's better than the Apple News app, of course. Yep, of course. Getting that, you have a lot of interactions with startups across Asia. Where do you see their strengths and weaknesses then? Yeah, you know, I've been here almost four years, and I haven't seen this change as fast as I would anticipate. I guess because it's more cultural. I just put a video up this week about this around what can the East learn from the West? Because usually I say, what can the West learn from the East? So I, I was trying to flip it and think about what have I seen in the Eastern cultures that can really learn from the Western cultures? And I think we're still a little bit stuck in this idea that building the product matters and that you can sort of like not speaking up and not being kind of more bold about presenting yourself. And that's more of a kind of a marketing and sales perspective. So we all know in products, uh, anyone that's ever built a service or a product or company before knows that if you build it, they will not come. <laughs> like if you build a website, you put an app out there, no one's ever going to give a shit. You have to make sure that people care. And I think that we make two mistakes more so in the East and in the West, but obviously everyone you know can be lumped into this category is that we're still building a lot of gadgets we're building a lot of ideas. And I think in all the cities that I've been to in Southeast Asia and China, they generally focus at home and they don't think global early enough. And that's not because of probably a lack of intelligence. It's because a lot of them aren't traveling and getting exposure to a lot of these other cultures and the West in particular. And so they aren't really able to think through, well, how could I enter the European market? How could I enter the North American market? How could I enter Australia or these other places? And I think on the other hand, I'm still seeing a pretty crazy cultural issue pretty much in every country that I go to is these founders are just not sort of, they're not outspoken enough. They're not telling their story loud enough. They're, they're still a little bit too passive. And the problem is that the whole world gets bombarded with so much information that no one has time to care about your message. No one has time to read your content, watch your blog posts, look at your crowdfunding launch. No one has the time. And I think that that's something that I continue to see needs to be reinforced is a building confidence and comfort with being able to tell your story over and over again in a way that makes people care and be absolutely relentless 
at going out there and pitching yourself. And I know that culturally it's kind of unacceptable. And it even, I could even feel it. Like I had this weekend at a pitch competition. There was a, a guy from Hong Kong who was super good at this, but it kind of feels a little culturally in, or like kind of tone deaf to do it. But he's smart because if he doesn't do it, no one's ever going to care. So those are two of the areas I think we can focus on more is understanding the global customer and then making sure to kind of fight the culture of being so passive because it doesn't really work when you're trying to build a business. So where do you see things go into the next year with respect to hardware and IoT in Asia itself? I think we're going to have some really interesting, uh, at least coming out of our portfolio, and, uh, and I can see a couple others. I think we're going to start seeing some of the first kind of cracks in the infrastructure of some of the larger corporations and governments that don't start thinking about becoming smart, that aren't thinking about becoming connected. And I think this is in tandem with artificial intelligence because the hardware by itself, as we all know, is not the main point. You need to make the hardware smart, which is the software and the intelligence you know, from the AI perspective. I think at least things I'm looking at is there's going to be a couple of applications. I'm hoping that by the end of next year, we're going to have a couple of use cases that are finally going to make it undeniable. I'm not sure. It's not, I'm not 100% we're going to get it next year. It might take a little bit longer, so it might be 2019. But we're not far off from the kind of aha moments that are going to happen across Southeast Asia. I have a feeling it's probably going to be something to do with food supply or something to do with health technology that is going to be just so profound that it's undeniable people are going to stop ignoring and we're going to see the support, the investment, the policies start to change because they have to, not because they're being smart and proactive. It's more that they have to be reactive now. They have to start doing it. So we'll see. But I I think this is actually going to be fairly imminent. That's the feeling of the killer app coming, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Okay. But it's always a pleasure talking to you. And one of the things I really enjoy is the way you think about things and compartmentalize into very interesting insights, not just with from your social media tweets and also from your videos as well. So in closing, I want to ask you, can you recommend a book, podcast or anything that's useful to you in your work or personal life recently? Absolutely. I, I, I try to follow uh, and stay as broad as I humanly can on topics. So I watch, uh, I use YouTube. I don't read. Um, my wife reads. I'm the, I'm the watcher. So I speed up my YouTube to about 1.5, 1.75x to consume more than uh, I usually can in a day. And I follow Motherboard. I follow Vox, VOX. I follow Vice. I try to be as in tune with the global issues that are happening because that allows me as an investor or an inventor to kind of see where the problems are in the world because it's pretty impossible for any of us because no matter, even if you travel as much as I do, you still don't have the time to be in tune with all the problems in the world and know what's going on. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges we have right now as inventors and investors is we get too focused of what's right in front of us. So I usually would check out those three channels and and obviously would love, love to put in the plug if you're interested in learning more about what we're doing, please go ahead and follow our blog, just blog.brink.io, and then me on just Bay to Bay. On Twitter, I'm very, very happy to answer anyone's questions. You see, that's fast before I've even asked you my final question. How can my audience find you? But, but <laughs> Gotta still, get it in. I still want to ask you to plug your Twitter and your other media accounts. So where can my audience find you? You can find me everywhere at Beta Bay, B-E-T-A-B-A-Y, and hashtags living in beta. You can ask me anything. I seriously mean that. I will answer every single question. I do this on purpose 
because I've been given so much great time from my mentors and people that have helped me grow. And I want to share those experiences with all of you. Uh, and then our company's blog, just blog.brink.io or on Twitter, just at BrinkIoT. Feel free to reach out, guys. You can find me all over the world. I talk all the time, so I'd love to meet you anywhere. And you can find me at Bernard Leung or at BernardLeung.com. You can subscribe to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast. And tune in, of course, Google Play in the US market. Tweet to me. Give me a five-star rating on iTunes Store and, of course, a star on Overcast. But most importantly, drop me your feedback. Once again, Bay, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks, Bernard.